This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Award-winning novelist Kent Kruger and author of the popular Cork O'Connor mystery series will visit Charleston for the West Virginia Book Festival. An artist, I don't care what your medium is, if you're going to uh, accomplish anything with your art, you have to approach it in a disciplined way. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. West Virginia's Corrections Commissioner says staffing and facility conditions are improving. Randy Yoey has more. Corrections Commissioner William Marshall says for the first time since COVID-19 hit, jail and prison guard vacancies are under 1,000, standing at 990. Speaking before the Legislative Oversight Committee on Regional Jails and Prisons, Marshall said the $21 million the legislature approved for pay raises is helping grow guard academy classes and retirees are coming back to work. He says changes in the six-week class, getting recruits out on the floors at two and a half weeks, gives recruits and supervisors decision-making experiences. It gives them an opportunity to see if this job fits them or not. He says 330 to 340 National Guard members under emergency orders continue to staff corrections facilities. Marshall says $60 million in deferred maintenance projects are underway statewide. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The state's educational leaders and legislators continue to focus on the issue of school discipline. Chris Schultz has more. The Joint Standing Committee on Education heard a presentation of school disciplinary data Monday evening. The data, previously presented to the Board of Education in May, showed that more than a third of all foster care students were referred for a disciplinary incident, and one out of every four foster care students was suspended from school in the 2022 school year. Delegate Heather Tully, Republican from Nicholas County, asked Drew McClanahan, Director of Leadership Development for the West Virginia Department of Education, how outcomes for this group can be improved. We have to do a better job of identifying who our foster care students are. And we have situations where maybe a school doesn't know that that child's in foster care. He said the study has allowed the Department of Education to identify gaps in the school support system for foster care students that can now be addressed. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. The Black Infant and Maternal Health Working Group hosted a breakfast and meet and greet with lawmakers Monday at the Capitol. Emily Rice has more. The event brought together advocates, affected community members, health professionals, and policymakers to address black infant and maternal health outcomes in West Virginia. Representatives from Black by God, the Black Voter Impact Initiative, the Morgantown Kingwood NAACP, Morgantown Now, the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, and Team for West Virginia Children participated in the breakfast. Attendees heard from experts like Rhonda Ragambe, the Health and Safety Net Policy Analyst with the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy. The most recent multi-year your data showed that black babies were twice as likely as their white counterparts to die in their first year of life in West Virginia, um, and that's an unacceptable statistic. According to the March of Dimes, the number of preterm births between 2019 and 2021 in West Virginia was higher for black infants at 17.6% compared to 12.4% for white babies. Preterm birth is a high indicator of risk, but West Virginia law currently does not allow the mortality review team to interview the family of an infant or mother who dies, which limits the scope of the information they collect, according to Ragambe. That has only been exacerbated by the 
COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so without that knowledge on the state level, we really don't know what that looks like. But given the other health indicators that our black population often faces, we can reasonably assume that the issue is worse for black West Virginians as well. Ragambe said more data collection and the sharing of that data by race in a timely fashion would give a more complete picture of black infant and maternal health outcomes in West Virginia. When controlling for variables like income, education, um, and other pieces, we still see black women facing higher rates of mortality than their white peers, um, which all of those things mean that in West Virginia we really, really need to address this issue and, and just ensure that moms and babies live. Attendees had the opportunity to share their stories with lawmakers directly at Monday's breakfast. Some have lived experience of racial discrimination in maternal health, like Elizabeth Ann Greer Mobley. I have a master's degree plus 42 credits still did not save me from suffering two horrific miscarriages, from suffering from catastrophic and, well, catastrophic in the sense of I hemorrhaged, my children ended up in a PICU, NICU, NICU first, and it just does not protect you in the state of West Virginia from having horrific and challenging medical situations when there's black racism ingrained within the maternal and infant medical industry. Mobley moved from Maryland to Martinsburg with her family when she was 14. She lovingly calls herself a black Alachian. Because I claim West Virginia, I've been here for 18 years. My babies, I'm giving birth in West Virginia, educated in West Virginia. I stayed in West Virginia, have a 501c3, an LLC. I'm proud to be here. I stayed here. But you don't want me. You don't want my children. So my life, my, the lives of me and my children are not worthy. In addition to being involved in her community in Martinsburg, Mobley is also a foster parent for the state. She said she attended the breakfast at the Capitol so that no one else has to go through what she has gone through. And so I don't know what it's going to take or what I have to say or what all I have to give to, to make the story palpable enough for us to impact and affect real change. Because what I went through should never happen again. Ragambe said improvements could be made by prioritizing families in the upcoming 2024 legislative session. Creating pathways for midwives and doulas to be reimbursed um, by health insurance companies so that uh, pregnant people have options um, in terms of what their care looks like. Things like paid family and medical leave so that people can recover, deepening our wealth of resources around mental health. There are a broad range of, th of options and, you know, the more that we prioritize families, whatever that looks like, the better that our outcomes will be. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 751. Partly sunny today, highs in the 50s and 60s. Partly cloudy tonight, lows in the 40s. And partly cloudy tomorrow with highs in the 60s. 
Support for WVPB is provided by CRW Airport with new flights to Orlando, Florida, Charleston, South Carolina, and Tampa, Florida on Breeze Airways. Visit JaegerAirport.com. And by CAMC Women and Children's Hospital, home to more than 30 pediatric specialties. More at CAMC.org slash WCH. Award-winning novelist Kent Kruger has written 23 books, including 19 in the popular Cork O'Connor Mystery Series. Saturday, Kruger comes to Charleston for the West Virginia Book Festival. He spoke to Bill Lynch about his books, writing, and his latest standalone novel, The River We Remember. One of the things that jumped out while I was looking at your biography, or, or actually your bibliography, the things you've written, you're a man who can stick with one thing for quite a while. Cork O'Connor, 19 books? 19. What's the attraction to following one character for so long? Well, you get to know the guy uh, pretty well. And uh, there's a whole array of adjunct characters in the series that uh, I have enjoyed exploring as well. You know, there are definitely advantages to writing a long-running, very popular mystery series. Uh, Every time I come up with a new book, it sells the backlist. When I sit down to write a story in the Cork O'Connor series, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, I already have a cast of characters that readers are familiar with, a sense of place uh, that they have come to embrace. There are certain elements that uh, every reader expects in a Cork O'Connor novel. So it's a little easier for me to write one of my serious mysteries than uh, than the other standalones that I have become well known for uh, also you're one of those writers who has kind of a kind of a regulated system you uh, you get up at a very specific hour write for a specific time was it difficult to, to find that discipline no actually that's uh, how I have approached my work for 40 plus years now I think if you're an artist, I don't care what your medium is, if you're going to uh, accomplish anything with your art, you have to approach it in a disciplined way. That particular process for me, getting up at six o'clock every morning, seven days a week and writing for uh, several hours, began many, many years ago when my wife entered law school and I suddenly became the sole supporter of the family. I was the guy who had to you know, keep a roof over her head and food on the table, but I wanted desperately to be a writer. We were uh, living two blocks from this iconic cafe in St. Paul, a place called the St. Clair Broiler, that opened its doors at six o'clock every morning, seven days a week. So I pitched this idea to my wife. I said, Diane, if you're willing to get the kids up and dressed and fed and off to school uh, first thing so I can go right, I swear to you, when I come home at the end of the day, I'm going to be the best husband, the best father you can possibly imagine. She bought it. So there I was at uh, six o'clock every morning uh, at the broiler door waiting for the the coffee shop to open, uh, waiting there with my pen and notebook in hand because this was long before they had laptops. They would sit me in uh, the booth, booth number four always. They saved it for me. Uh, and I would write from six till 7.15. I would uh, pay for my coffee, catch a bus out front that would take me to work. Um, and I followed that routine for years and years and years until I Sold my first novel, uh, which allowed me to jump ship and become a writer full time. You still write by longhand or you uh, go to a laptop these days? 
I wrote my first 10, probably 10 novels longhand. And if you write longhand, there is a step that involves transcribing the longhand into that very messy longhand stuff into a word processing program of some kind. Uh, I was behind deadline. I thought, you know, if I could skip that transcription step, maybe I could actually meet deadline, which was a scary proposition for me because writing longhand was a part of the magic. It was like the the idea came from my head and passed through my heart, down my arm, through the pen onto the page. And I was actually very concerned that if I monkeyed with the magic, maybe it wouldn't happen. But I went ahead and gave it a try. It worked. You have a new standalone kind of book out, The River We Remember? Yeah, it is uh, set in the summer of 1958 in southern Minnesota in an area I call Black Earth County. It opens on Memorial Day, 1958, when the county's leading citizen, a man named Jimmy Quinn, is found floating in the Alabaster River, which flows through town, uh, dead from a shotgun blast and nearly naked. It really is a true mystery in that the question at the heart of the story is who killed Jimmy Quinn and why, but it's really about a whole lot more. Would you like to hear that part of it? I, I would. I'd be delighted to. Uh, in the early 1940s, my father graduated from high school, enlisted in the military service, and marched off to fight uh, in World War II in Europe. He was just a kid, you know, he was 18 years old. He came back several years later, a man deeply wounded in body and in spirit by what the war had done to him. Uh, I recognize now that he was probably suffering from PTSD, but, you know, nobody talked about that back then. You know, and when I was a kid, I pestered my father for war stories. Did you kill any Germans, Dad? He absolutely refused to talk about the war. And he was very like the, the fathers of my friends, guys who, like my dad, had fought in World War II or the Korean War. Um, and they all went away kids, you know, some not even old enough to shave yet. And they came back men deeply wounded by the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And all my life, I've wondered, how could anybody heal? And that's really what the river we remember is about, how to heal. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was author Ken Kruger speaking with Bill Lynch. Kruger appears Saturday at the West Virginia Book Festival in Charleston. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yowie. Caroline McGregor is our assistant news director, and she produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. Mm-hmm.